0: Coming up, nations make a landmark climate deal in Paris. And what next?
1: I'm cautiously optimistic that the world will now build on this agreement here in Paris.
2: And we try our hand at sorting out the science fact from the science fiction.
1: There is a chemical
2: called
3: nitrogen triiodide that is so volatile that it will explode if a mosquito lands on it.
0: Plus, the board game that gives you the power to evolve your own animals. But who will survive?
4: So I think the lesson for carnivores is body size trumps population. If you oh, know. yes, so exactly. Sure. I'm just happy that you all learned something with uh, my extension. It's very, very educational.
2: All that and more festive fun coming up. This is The Nature Podcast for December the 17th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith.
0: And I'm Adam Levy.
2: One of the biggest stories of the year is the global climate deal just achieved in Paris. It came after two weeks of negotiations at a meeting called the 21st Conference of the Parties, or COP21, to its friends. And Noah Baker was there, in the thick of it for the full fortnight. He looks back on his time.
5: This was the moment that COP president Laurent Fabius knocked his gavel to the table to pass the historic Paris Agreement on climate change. As he did so, he said, in French, this is a small gavel, but I think it can achieve great things. I was lucky enough to be in that room, as it happened, along with fellow reporter Jeff Tollefson. Jeff recounts the day leading up to that moment.
6: The draft text finally came out around um, 1 or 2 p.m. and then, as usual, there was, a, there was a long scramble to, to understand what was in there. paragraph in Article 4.9 on communicating and action determined... Everybody went and took a look. And then we went back for, uh, for the final meeting. The plenary
5: hall where the meeting was to be held was buzzing with nervous excitement, not least because
6: the meeting was delayed for hours. The tension rose. Why is there a delay? What does that mean? Uh, we waited, we waited, we waited, and then after more than two hours of waiting, uh, uh, Laurent Fabius, the president of the COP, uh, put the agreement on the floor, and he, uh, he called for a vote, um, and, and the whole chamber erupted into massive applause and shouts and whistles, um, and this went on for about two minutes, and then he grabbed his little gavel and he gaveled it through, and the world had an agreement. And everybody was stunned. Um, this was a situation where nobody knew what was gonna happen. There were, there were expectations that, that there were gonna be objections. There were fears that, uh, that, that, um, that a few countries might try and bring it down. And, and, and France just gaveled it through. Um, it was really an amazing piece of political drama.
5: It was certainly a moment of joy for many delegates at the COP.
7: The Paris deal, climate change agreement, which is really
6: good.
1: I'm feeling very good. It's an excellent result from my point of view.
6: It's a transformational moment of change. I've never been part of anything or seen anything like this.
1: I think it's pretty good. It was a good agreement. We're very happy.
5: The optimism in the center was palpable, but there was still a question in many people's minds. Was it a good deal?
6: Well, I think that depends on your, your perspective. Clearly, it's, it's, a, it's a huge landmark for, for environmental diplomacy um, and for environmental policy. So there can be no doubt about that. This is, uh, this is something that the world's been trying to do for a quarter century. And, and finally, the entire world, virtually, is on the same framework for trying to solve this problem. You know, is it a good deal? There's another interpretation of that where you can say, is it enough? And, and clearly what we have today, which is a collection of, of non-binding commitments from most countries on Earth, you know, won't get us where we want to go. So that's the question. You know, is this framework enough to, uh, to push countries to do more in the decades to come? Here's David Nussbaum,
5: the CEO of the World Wildlife Fund in the UK.
1: Well, I think we do have here a text which is a landmark in the progress that the world's making to tackle climate change. It provides a vision of a long-term goal. Uh, That gives us a mandate to press on with the actions that we all need to take on climate change. It also has a framework for reviewing the commitments that people have already made because we know that those commitments are not yet enough to achieve that long-term goal. And it has some mechanisms, again not yet sufficient, but some mechanisms for getting the money to flow, so that people can tackle the inevitable effects of climate change as well as mitigating uh, against uh, runaway climate change.
5: Nussbaum also looked towards the future.
1: I'm cautiously optimistic that the world will now build on this agreement here in Paris and in particular that the private sector is now going to have a bit more confidence to invest the huge amounts of money that we need uh, and that are going to give good returns to get us towards a low-carbon economy.
5: These next steps were on many people's minds. Here's Jennifer Morgan, the Global Director of the Climate Programme at the World Resources Institute.
6: Well, there's a lot of after steps. It's all about implementation. So governments need to go home and and put their policies in place. Um, Developed country governments need to work in partnership with developing countries to help them deliver on their INDCs, on their national climate plans.
5: She echoed Nussbaum's hopes about the private sector.
6: Investors have to shift their funding out of high carbon. signal is clear. It is so clear. And if you want to have a profitable company or bank or anything in the future, then you got to go. Renewables. There are next steps for the COP process, too. Well, first, uh, the negotiators are going to have to come back to the table next year and uh, iron out some details. Uh, most importantly, um, they, they, they didn't decide exactly what kind of information countries need to provide uh, to the United Nations, so that the pledges can be verified, this entire process is built on on the idea that uh, that, that we can look at what governments are doing when what they commit to doing and uh, and judge them so that's that 's kind of the the next step as far as the process goes in two thousand eighteen we 'll have our first meeting to assess how things are going in terms of uh, of uh, making progress on reducing emissions and then in 2020 governments will be expected to put um, new pledges on the table, or at least revisit their old pledges.
5: The true success of the Paris Agreement is yet to be determined. But for me at least, the moment the deal was passed is one I won't be forgetting in a hurry.
2: That was Noah Baker and Jeff Tollifson. To find out more about the deal, the process and where we go from here, check out all of our COP coverage at nature.com slash parisclimate.
0: Ho, ho ho Merry Christmas! In the room just next door to the studio here at Nature HQ, Kerry has set up a favourite holiday activity with a scientific flavour. Off you go then Kerry and tell us what you've been planning.
2: Back in a minute! No holiday season would be complete without some kind of organised fun. And our fun of choice is a board game. But not just any board game. This one is called um, Evolution. So
8: this chap is the starting token. Brontosaurus, maybe?
2: The aim of the game is to evolve as many species as possible, give them lots of helpful traits, and crucially, make sure they can eat to survive.
8: So these are your species boards. you have one for each species.
2: I've gathered nature's biggest fans of either evolution or board games, or both. Firstly, Shell Grayson.
8: I'm Shell Grayson, I'm an editor with Nature Outlooks, and my role here is mainly for the
2: board games. Joining Shell is Nature's biology editor Henry G, evolution-loving reporter Ewan Calloway, and Nature Review's microbiology editor Claudio Nunes Alves. Now, Shell has been explaining already the detailed rules to the other players, but basically each player is dealt a selection of trait cards at random, which they can use to create species. They then fight over a limited food supply to feed their creations as the game proceeds. They can even feed one species with another, but that's for later. Shell, over to you.
8: It's ironic, Thanks, given the central Thanks, um, theme of this game is evolution, that everybody is kind of like a little god directing their species. Is it a
9: creationist game?
8: It's in disguise, yeah. <laughs> So, um, so the aim of the game is to have as many species with as many traits as possible, eating as much food
4: at the expense of all the other players, presumably, <laughs> and their food sources. Yeah.
8: Yeah. Well, yes, it's competitive after all. It's limited food.
4: Survival yeah. of the fittest, one might say.
8: Yeah, that's uh, a catchy uh, phrase. We should uh, use that. Terribly
4: Malthusian.
8: <laughs> okay, so we each start with four cards. Some of them help with uh, gathering food. So you might be a, a long neck which gives you an advantage in collecting some free food before everybody else gets to go. Or you could be a scavenger, and then any time a carnivore gets food, you also get food. So there are various traits as well which protect you from being eaten. If you have horns, you can still be eaten, but the carnivore loses one of its population during the attack.
4: So we get doled out these traits at random, or...? You get the cards (coughs) at random,
8: but you get to play them.
4: I see. Sorry, um, ran, random mutation, yeah, right, right. Yeah. So we yeah. kind of the decide where we want to take this. Conste- Contextualised during the into adaptation mm. by the ecosystem. Mm. Cool. I couldn't have put it better.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there is a little prize for the winner. This is not, as it may appear, a chocolate Santa Claus, but this is in fact Charles Darwin in his holiday <laughs> getup. And um, as you can see, sort of six inches of chocolate there that you can compete for. So I'll leave him here at the end of the table. He can watch over the game from up there. While the game gets going then, let's return to the studio and we'll be coming back to the game room soon to find out who has evolved what.
0: Well, now on the show, we have a slightly different guest to our normal fare. James Harkin joins us in the studio. Hi, James. Hi there. Now, you are a researcher, but not maybe the normal kind of researcher we'd have on The Nature Podcast.
3: Yeah, not the same as your researchers. Um, I am a researcher for the television show QI, which is a British panel show, comedy show, uh, where we look at the most interesting and unusual facts. The idea is that
0: people watching our show have never heard these facts before. Now, it must be a very different kind of research to scientific research. You know, when you're working in a field, you just need to know what research has come before you. You've got quite a specific remit. Yeah. with you. You're just looking for really interesting obscure facts. The field's yeah. wide wide open. So unlike um, probably
3: a lot of your listeners, um, very, very rare that we do original research. I remember one time I, I read that if you put an onion in your shoe, and walked around with it all day, you'll be able to taste it by the end of the day. So I did that. That was a bit of original research. One time as well, I read that if you didn't wash your hair for six months, then it would start washing itself, and that didn't work either. Okay,
0: <laughs> you tried them.
3: <laughs> I tried them both uh, at the same time, actually. It's no surprise that it was probably the time in my life when I was single for the
0: longest. And that <laughs> does not surprise me at all. These are both very, I mean, they're not facts I've ever heard about to think about trying. How do you come across facts like these well in these case non-facts basically it's reading
3: just reading everything and picking just that one little bit which is like oh that's strange um this isn't science related but i was reading a book about um national anthems yesterday and just a throwaway comment by the guy who was writing it said that the slovenian national anthem is a poem and when you write it out it's in the shape of a wine glass and it's called a toast is the name of the song and he just kind of put it as a throwaway comment, but I'm like, that's an amazing fact. Let's, that's going to be like a headline fact in one of our things. Now, the show
0: isn't just about interesting unusual facts, it's also about interesting commonly held myths. That's right. How do you research myths? That seems like quite a, you need quite a different technique to get at myths.
3: We research for about six months, so five or six months for each series. Uh, And for all of that time, you're always looking for certain phrases like contrary to popular belief or scientists have disproven or something like
0: that. Now, over the years you've been working on this, have you come across a science fact that in particular has really just blown your mind? So
3: I read just recently um, that mushrooms can make it rain. I thought that was quite cool. So if they're getting dry, they can release spores into the atmosphere and these spores can then nucleate uh, and make clouds or the clouds can nucleate around them and that can make it rain. And the idea that something like a mushroom can do something so massive and so we really like it when it's something that people haven't really thought about before, something that people see all the time, something that people would, would know exists, but then don't really realise that actually it's doing something bigger and it's it's part of a much bigger,
0: more important system. The Nature Podcast a few months ago, I think we had a story that plankton poo was uh, helping ice clouds to, oh, to yeah. nucleate. But, but you'll right get
3: then? a lot of experts who are listening,
0: I guess. We really have to be very careful because we know that in our audience there's someone who knows a lot more about what we're talking about than we
3: do. I think we have that on QI as well because we get, you know, a good few million people watching it and we are not experts in any of these fields that we talk about. We're just, we're people who have found stuff, we're really enthusiastic amateurs, but we're not experts and we try our absolute best, but there will be someone watching who is more of an expert in every subject than we are. In a series of QI we have 16 episodes and each show we'll write about 16 questions for, so I won't tell you how many that is but it's a lot and so we you know we have an awful lot of facts and a lot of, awful lot of things to check and we have quite a small team um so sometimes we have to go a little bit on trust and you know if it's if it's a you know if it's in nature then we kind of have to say well that does seem like it's right um but If it's on Wikipedia we tend to look for a second source or or a third or a fourth. That's reassuring to know that we're more trusted than Wikipedia. (laughs) But the thing is is as well, we have let's say we have about a dozen people doing the research. Every time a question is written or come up with, then there are 12 sets of eyes that are looking at that, all of whom are trying to prove it wrong because we're quite a competitive bunch. I think we're helped by the absolute number of eyes who are looking at things. And very
0: cynical eyes as well. Extremely cynical eyes, yeah. Well, James, before you go, I feel like we've probably quizzed you quite enough at the moment, and it's probably time for you to quiz me and Kerry and test whether we can get uh, to grips with any of these obscure facts that you've been able to find
2: out. I'm nervous. You'll have been rummaging around for your best and most obscure science facts. I
3: have done exactly that. And um, at your request, I found two which are true and one which is not quite true. And I'd like you guys to tell me, if you can, which is the not quite true fact. So here is um, a chemistry, a chemistry fact. And that is that there is a chemical called nitrogen triiodide that is so volatile
2: that it will explode if a mosquito lands on it. I mean, how would you? You obviously can test it in an experimental setup, but who was the first to notice that a mosquito landed on this thing? And,
0: Probably the mosquito. <laughs> and why a mosquito? Well, um, if I remember chemistry from when I was 15 as well as I think I do, I have absolutely no idea about the answer to this question.
3: <laughs> okay, shall I give you another one? Yes, start. please.
0: The Large Hadron
3: Collider, uh, they sometimes have unidentified specks of dust falling from the top of the collider. um, And they are known by the scientists as UFOs, unidentified falling objects. So you can get UFOs in the Large Hadron
2: Collider. I like it. And I think it's exactly the kind of
3: thing that they would do.
0: Those wacky physicists. Yeah, I feel like I want that to be true. Uh, I like the idea of UFOs floating around in the Large Hadron Collider. That's not how
2: fact-checking works, Adam. (laughs) I
3: know, yeah. I've got in trouble
0: for that before.
3: One rule that we have on QI is, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Mm. Uh, The third one goes back to an old friend of QI's, which is the blue whale. Uh, A lot of our facts are about the blue whale, which is the largest living animal or dead animal. Uh, and that fact is that a blue whale's heart weighs as much as a Volkswagen Beetle. Ooh, I, I feel like I've heard it's the same size as
0: a Volkswagen Beetle.
2: Mm, but you're, you're questioning the mass. Which like, you you, you is... would do that, it... wouldn't you, <laughs> as know. a
0: physicist? I always question the mass. <laughs> Actually, I'm questioning the density. At its <gasps> heart, that's my question. This
3: fact is about the weight. Uh, it is about the weight, yeah.
0: I'm, I'm going to say I think the blue whale heart is heavier because, you know, a Volkswagen Beetle, there's loads of, uh, loads of air in it. Whereas a heart also has lots of <laughs> empty space in it. So now I have no idea. Yeah.
3: This um. isn't a fully loaded Volkswagen Beetle. This is just a, you know, straight up, straight off the manufacturing line.
0: I think for me, I'm going to have to go for the blue whale heart being wrong, only because I have some way of reasoning it a little bit.
2: I'm, I feel pretty confident about the CERN physicists calling the oh, dust yeah. a UFO. I like I like that. And confident I'm confident that that's true. That's true. I think that's true. So we're now choosing between the other one. And they both are quite specific. I suppose you've done that deliberately. Why a mosquito? Why a Volkswagen Beetle? Yeah. Old Beetle or New Beetle? Pre-emission scandal, post-emission scandal. You're really um, getting to the
0: heart, <laughs> slash stalling for time.
2: <laughs> um, but why not? Why not make it interesting? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for the opposite. I'm gonna say, unlike Adam, I think the very explosive chemical mosquito. Well, I'll tell
3: you that that is true. That <gasps> fact. Uh, in oh, fact, no. it is so volatile that it can be detonated by alpha radiation. That's oh, how goodness. volatile it is.
2: How does anyone keep this stuff or well, make it's, it? Yeah,
3: it's very hard to keep. Um, unexploded, at least.
2: My bad. Adam, you are the victor.
3: Is the Large Hadron Collider <gasps> one true?
2: I was just assuming it was. Oh, my no, goodness. How lazy. so
3: plausible, though. Never assume when it comes to facts. Uh, but in this case, you were right to assume because that is true. And the blue whale's heart actually weighs 22% as much as a Volkswagen Beetle. So much lighter. Yeah. So you should
0: drive one of those. (laughs)
3: Um, I don't think that's quite what we're saying here. But yeah, a lot of places on the internet say that it is the same size as a Volkswagen Beetle, um, but this year um, they dissected a whale and got its heart and measured it and found out that actually it's a lot smaller than people thought. Uh, And there's a factoid that that a child could kind of swim through its aorta, and that's not quite true either. Um, A blue whale's aorta is about the same size as a child's head.
2: Are these uh, exclusive facts or have you used these before on the Uh, show?
3: I have not used these before. They will be appearing in some of QI's material, I'm sure, in the next year or so. Well, speaking of QI's material, there are actually two QI books
0: coming out soon, is that right? Yeah,
3: actually, they're already out. Uh, We have two books out um, this Christmas. One of them is called 1234 QI Facts to Leave You Speechless, uh, which is a load of um, short facts like the ones I've just said. Uh, And the other one is called The Third Book of General Ignorance, uh, which is a lot of stories of things which are not quite true in the universe and why they're not
0: true. James Harkin, they're one of QI's fact-hunting elves. Yes, they really do call them elves. If you're in the UK, you can watch QI on the BBC iPlayer or on BBC Two over Christmas. Wherever you are, you can get the books from all good booksellers. And James is going to stay put for the moment because we have one more very important job for him later in the show. Kerry, it's about time you gave us another update on the game, don't you think?
2: You're quite right, Adam. We're back in the game room and each player has built up a small selection of animals in the first couple of rounds by choosing cards from their hand. And one added bonus of the game is that each time you create an animal, you can give it a species name based on its major characteristics. The players are discovering they're not quite like the Latin names you might expect.
8: So we reveal our cards. I have a long necked, cooperative species, and I can even try and name it uh, Extendo Pate. Expelliarmus! (laughs)
7: <laughs> Expelliarmus! <laughs> All
8: right, but stretcher
2: You've got a key here to uh, species naming. I don't know. It's if... entirely scientific as well. Mm, okay. yeah. Not sure how Linnaeus would feel about this. Uh, well, I've <laughs> got
4: the uh, code for zoological nomenclature upstairs. I could go and get it. So maybe we'd run out of time. I have a species that is um, cooperative and intelligent.
2: geek Calamageek. <laughs> How would you so far rate the gameplay, because these things are almost as as key as the sort of science for for gamers?
8: Sure, I was a bit worried when I looked at the rules whether it'd actually be a playable game or not. Because you always want a nice mix of luck and strategy. So obviously it's luck which trade cards you get given, but then it's strategy how you play them. Okay,
9: so my, my symbiotic intelligent animal is now a
1: carnivore.
8: Ooh. <laughs> mm. Remember what I said earlier about carnivores uh, only eating if they have a bigger body size than their prey. Oh,
1: right. really? <laughs> <laughs> There's an important lesson.
8: Yes. Um,
9: so that means that guy is going to go extinct. Oh, mm. sad face. <laughs> it, it forgot mm. that it, it has at to. The top of the trophic so
8: pyramid. You, you do have a cheat sheet on, the, on your um, thing, so, so yeah, is. carnivore...
4: Yeah. yeah, you can't have too many carnivores. You see, mm. you know, carnivores. You know, why big fierce animals are rare. So I think the lesson it, for carnivores is body size trumps population. If you oh, like yes. so exactly, sure. I'm just happy that you all learned something with uh, my extinction. It's very very educational. Mm.
2: Many lessons to be learned from the uh, fossil record, mm. which you have now <laughs> joined.
1: <laughs> I mean, can we really call it a carnivore if it if it never fed? <laughs>
8: It's aspirational,
2: (laughs) Let's leave the fossil carnivore and its ecosystem for a moment while we take you back to the studio, where Sharmini Bundell has been getting excited about the science behind a new release.
0: Now, as the nights draw in and we huddle up by our fires, there's one thing that everyone is looking forward to this December.
2: Board games!
0: No, no, not that.
2: Christmas? Hanukkah. Winter solstice.
0: No, I'm obviously talking, of course, about the new Star Wars film, The Force Awakens, which has just been released. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Well, maybe not everyone's as excited as I am, but someone who is is Shamini Bundel. In fact, she's so excited that she's even managed to find a way to talk about it on the podcast. A new book by psychologist Travis Langley explores the psychology of the existing Star Wars stories. A long time ago in a galaxy far away, also known as Last Week in the Podcast Studio, Charmley gave him a call to find out more.
7: The Nature Podcast is great, obviously, but I've always felt it needed just a little bit more Star Wars. Luckily, Travis Langley is on the phone to provide just that. Travis, now you must be someone who is looking forward to the new Star Wars film.
9: I have been looking forward to the new Star Wars film since 1983.
7: <laughs> and that was when... The last of the trilogy came out and creator George Lucas teased the idea of there being nine Star Wars films. It looks like that's finally going to actually happen. Um, But we better not get too distracted speculating about the new film because the book only covers the story so far. And what's the book called?
9: It is Star Wars Psychology, Dark Side of the Mind. The subtitle was my editor's suggestion. I wanted Jedi mind tricks, but Jedi is a, a trademarked word. so. You're
7: clearly a big Star Wars fan, but what's the day job?
9: I am professor of psychology at Henderson State University, but until 2007, the nerdy side of my life, I mean, my interest in science fiction and fantasy, and the professor side of my life were two different things. And over the last you know, several years, I've gotten to where you know, every spring I'll teach a class, psychology and literature, psychology and film, where I use these fictional characters, their stories to talk about real psychology.
7: And is that an easy thing to do, to link those two things?
9: You know, fan- when fans argue about things like Star Wars or anything else they're interested in, they're usually asking psychological questions, even if they're not using those terms. Like when They say, why would that character do that? Why would someone do that is a psychological question.
7: Uh, so you've edited this book with contributions from different experts, and it's part of a whole series. There's one about The Walking Dead. You've done one before on the psychology of Batman, um, and I think scientists might often be a bit sceptical of, of using popular culture in the way that you have to talk about science. Or why do you use these big franchises?
9: I, I know. It would be very easy to look at the list of things we're doing and go, oh, you're just writing about this stuff because it's popular. It's like, well, we are fans of popular culture in the first place. We love this stuff. You know, people use examples all the time. Well, for somebody who... For somebody who loves popular culture using those examples it's a great way to learn you know a topic like psychology
7: so does star wars specifically have something unique to teach us about psychology
9: star wars because of being in that galaxy long ago and far away it steps even further away from our own real world our own situation and and oddly enough that can actually let people look at reality more clearly because it takes them outside their own biases that they already might have. When you see the scene in the cantina, when the bartender points to the droids and says, we don't serve their kind, and he's surrounded by beings of many different species, we can immediately see the irony of what's going on there. So, by going to this fantastic situation, by going to these worlds that are definitely not our own, in some ways, we can look more purely at the actual... Underlying issues. Hey, we don't serve their kind here. What? You're droid. They'll have to wait outside. We don't want them here. Right way up by the speeder. We don't want
1: any trouble. I heartily agree with you, sir.
7: I wanted to talk about some particular examples from the books because it does cover a whole range of topics and links themes from the films with a lot of actual psychological experiments, Um, and there there was some particularly interesting sections in the book about when it comes to droids, so robots in the Star Wars universe. Um, You've got characters like R2-D2, who's one of the heroes, and then you've got enemy battle droids in The Phantom Menace.
10: Check it out, Corporal. We'll cover you.
8: Roger,
7: roger. And they're portrayed differently, they have different sort of levels of humanity imbued in them.
9: Yeah, like with those battle droids. Even though they do show occasional signs of personality, but for the most part, they're treated as you know disto- disposable machines. But they do the same thing with the stormtroopers. You know, the stormtroopers with their white appearance, this white armor, and you know, this the the blackened eye areas. It looks like a machine. It looks like a droid. In fact, there are a lot of kids who watch that and they think the stormtroopers are machines because of how mechanical they look and the sameness of them. I see these as being tied in, you know, dehumanizing the enemy, dehumanizing, you know, the forces that serve evil because, well, that makes it easier to have your war story without really getting into, you know, the terrible consequences of whatever happening.
4: TK-421, why aren't you at your post? TK-421, do you copy?
7: I'm going back um, into the Star Wars world again. Um, So in the Star Wars universe, the Galactic Empire, who the big baddies, have chosen these uniforms for their soldiers. Um, And there's also, we see that they refer to the soldiers by serial numbers instead of by name. What kind, of, what kind of psychological effect would that have you know, in this world? Would that have on the soldiers themselves?
9: It de-individuates them. It reduces their sense of themselves as individual human beings. And for the people in charge of something like the Empire, well, that's what they want. They want everybody to just fall in line and do the same thing. And this happens in the real world too. You know, for example, you know, a study in which individuals were given a task where they, they could be aggressive towards somewhere else. So they were given directions to be aggressive. And those wearing uh, you know like pillowcases over their heads with, with eye holes and so forth, so essentially masks, you know, to help hide their own identities from the person who would see them, and even make them feel de-individuated. And, and yeah, they became more aggressively when they were wearing those masks.
7: It's, it was really interesting that the filmmakers can use psychology to manipulate the audience, but the psychology of the, of the characters in the story can also have a real significant meaning on our sort of modern lives or ideas for the future. Well, I'm just pretty pleased right now that i found a way to talk about Star Wars on The Nature Podcast, so thanks for that, Travis, and I hope the new film doesn't disappoint. Yes, that is the hope. The new hope.
0: That was Travis Langley, author of Star Wars Psychology, Dark Side of the Mind, which is available now. Travis was talking to Star Wars hyperfan Shamini Bandel. Before we could let QI researcher James Harkin leave the studio, because he works in TV, we're going to pretend he has the power to commission any brilliant idea we have. So Jeff Marsh now joins us in the studio as well. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Now me, Jeff, and Kerry are all going to come up with the best possible science TV programme pitches we've been able to think up. Hit me.
2: Uh, I'd like to propose the Great British Pipettoff, which is... A kind of a baking style show where instead of using um, a piping bag, you actually have to use advanced scientific equipment to decorate your cake. There'll probably be some explosions. It's for BBC Three. Anything with big explosions could be prime time. It has mass appeal. Brilliant work, Kerry. I think it takes longer than that in reality, doesn't it? I'd like to say
3: (laughs) that my decisions are not legally binding.
0: (laughs) We can edit that to remove the knot from your (laughs) sentence. I was thinking only foals and horses. Okay. It's the new Naturalist
3: Unit Spectacular with a very singular focus on equine zoology. A slight problem that you're kind of narrowing down there. You you know, people who like sheep, for instance, what are they going
0: to watch? Series two. I have Game of Ribosomes uh, instead of Game of Thrones. I haven't actually thought about what that's about yet. As a, as a physicist, I probably should have come up with something more physics related, but <laughs> <that> I actually <laughs> understood the words in the title. Well,
2: how about America's Next Top Theorist? Basically, you get the five, let's say, five best mathematicians in the whole of America. And then. And they uh, bring it, their mathematical models. They do. It's riveting to watch them make them in real time, okay. live on air. I think I'm liking the pipettes most at the
3: moment. Sticking with the physicists, um, Sherlock Ohms and Dr. Watt. That's a crime fighting physicist duo. Great. Um... I haven't, got, <laughs> haven't got much further with the plot
0: than that. <laughs> yeah, I'd say come back to me with a script. My, my last remaining one, I am not as imaginative as these other two, is Curb Your Emissions, which is about a neurotic, uh, atmospheric physicist,
5: oh, okay. all quite
0: improvised, and he's trying to get the world to cut down on their greenhouse gas emissions.
3: Yeah, I like the way it's got a good message. Yeah, that we could be have something in that. Yeah, Worthy think? but
2: dull. Go for the pipettes. <laughs>
3: <Okay>. <laughs> Still pushing the pipettes. Still pushing them. I've got one. Uh, pipettes win prizes. Oh, Maybe. yes. <laughs> nice. yeah. They do. How I Met Your Moth. Uh, this is the extraordinary tale of pheromone sensitivity.
2: Uh, and I think it needs to be a sitcom. Yeah. Maybe it's the unlikely story of a bat and a moth cohabiting in harmony.
0: I've never actually been to a commissioning meeting for TV or for radio. This is exactly what it's like. Yeah, I thought so. Just hundreds of non-fleshed out ideas just thrown at someone who has no power to... Just lots of puns. That's
3: all we do. (laughs) OK, well, I'll take these back to my commissioning editor and... um, You know, don't call me. (laughs) You know a commissioning meeting's gone
0: well when it ends. Don't call me. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, James, for
2: tolerating uh,
0: excellent (laughs) ideas. I look forward to seeing you on the the film set.
2: And we're going to be tweeting all our favourite science-themed TV show ideas over the next couple of days. So if you've got any of your own, do tweet them under the hashtag Failed Science Shows, and we'll be sure to retweet our favourites.
0: And for one last time, Kerry, off you go to find out how everything is evolving in the next room.
2: Back to the game where Shell has evolved a carnivore that needs a meal, and Ewan is about to reveal a new addition to his menagerie.
7: My new species is fat. (laughs) <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's, that's all it is. That's, that's all it is.
4: It's Somebody's really... got to eat. <laughs> so basically, you're in just the hindsight. Just in just hindsight a... That might not have been the best strategy. No, basically, eat. that's just a decoy. decoy yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's that's basically a panda. Explain yeah, yeah, the panda. Yeah, yeah. Okay, shell You can feed your zoo now. Yeah, come on.
8: This is Acon. Well, yeah, yeah um, she's
4: gonna
9: eat the panda.
8: Mm. I guess the panda's it's days gonna, are numbered. He's just gonna go
9: extinct, isn't he? Ewan. Mm. (laughs) Panda's toast. (laughs) Okay, that was over quickly.
2: (laughs) Ewan, I think you've learnt some valuable evolutionary lessons there. And it turns out to be a very close-run thing between Ewan and Henry at the end, who counted up their points and species, and were one point apart. And here at the end of the game, one final question. How truly would you say that this game reflects uh, evolutionary principles that you know and love? What's... What's here that you're pleased is here, and what's missing?
4: Um, I think that this game shows how hard it is to be a successful carnivore. It really takes quite... You have to play a long game to be a carnivore. It's quite easy to be a successful herbivore.
2: Are you annoyed in any way for any serious evolutionary principles missing from this game?
4: Um, I think we need more sex. There's no sexual selection in this. Yeah, I mean there could be species that sort of display at each other. I think there? the
8: sex add-on is a pack that we should get for this game. Is do you think it, does thing? it
4: exist? It? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you're the book, but there are add-ons to do other things. There are other packs of cards and yes. flight is one, isn't it?
2: Apparently so. Yes, there so really is an add-on things, called yes. flight. It would be fun to make a version of this that was also a bit like Risk, Yeah. so that there was, you know, so that on the island of Madagascar, some species would live separated yeah. from the mainland and, yeah, need, and elsewhere. We
9: need marsupials. Yeah, it's
4: we, cool. need, we right. need vicarious <laughs> biogeography. We need the space for some evolution. On we planet. need lemurs, let's just be honest. We need <laughs> lemurs and yes, platypus. And What is a world without lemurs?
8: I like the fact that certain traits were additive and that if you had, for instance, uh, a long-necked cooperative animal ne- with a, a foraging companion, they could eat for free pretty much straight away.
4: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was an element of them teaming up just as... Organisms do, which also works
8: in a card in a board game capacity because you want to chain together your abilities in order to do better than everybody else.
1: Synergy. Yeah, I I think we need more uh, random mutation cards.
2: Mm.
8: (laughs) (laughs) So suddenly (laughs) your scavenging ability will vanish.
9: Exactly.
8: Yeah,
2: that would be fun, wouldn't it? Because you got to choose all your own traits here for the most part. Mm. I mean, from a selection in your hand, but still you were able to play God with those. So maybe a wild card that allows one of the other players to choose a trait for you or that inflicts a trait upon you that you didn't necessarily want yeah. would reflect or the process of genetic mutation
9: better. Changing an environment would exactly. be interesting as Some well. Selection. Because that's... Yeah, exactly. We need natural selection.
2: Climate change. Climate change. Yeah,
4: that's right. There was no environmental change in this. It was all The environment was kind of static, except for the amount of food in the watering
2: hole. Well, and I must thank you all, especially Shell, for taking the trouble to learn the rules ahead of time and and tell everyone else what the rules were, uh, and then spending the time to play the game with us on this um, rather holiday-themed board game afternoon. Um, So thank you, everyone, for joining me.
4: Thank you.
6: Thank Thank you. you.
0: Time now for a very special news chat, and today we're looking back at what made 2015 special for science. Helen Pearson joins us in the studio. Hi, Helen. Hi. And Cory Locke joins us on the line all the way from the United States. Hi, Curry. Hello. Let's start with you, Cory. What story do you think has been one of the biggest we've encountered this year at Nature?
10: Well, I think if you ask people uh, what they remember most from this year, I think Pluto is, is at the top of uh, a lot of people's lists. The New Horizons spacecraft uh, did their flyby of Pluto in July. I mean, we got treated to some beautiful images showing an amazing variation and complexity uh, of geological features and patterns. Uh, you know, we saw ice mountains and nitrogen glaciers and uh, even this bizarre-looking snakeskin terrain. Pluto is unlike any other planet in our, uh, in our solar system. Um, I think planetary scientists are still kind of scratching their heads about what is going on on the planet that's creating such a, a wide range of geological activity, so more to come uh, on Pluto for sure.
0: It's one of those rare stories as well, I guess, where it's incredibly interesting and exciting scientifically, but also for laypeople just seeing these brand new pictures of a distant world, it's just instantly beautiful and without necessarily understanding the science, it still captures the imagination of the public.
10: You know, I wish my son was a little bit older, uh, <laughs> I would have definitely gotten him interested in Pluto and space with these, with these sorts of images.
0: Now, Helen, you've been compiling a list of 10 of the most important people in science over 2015. Have any of them been working on Pluto specifically?
11: absolutely so what we call the nature 10 is our list of people some of the people who mattered in in science this year and we really wanted to um, acknowledge the amazing mission to Pluto and we couldn't really choose anybody else but Alan Stern who's been the, the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission and has really worked on this for an extraordinarily long time so it was first proposed back in 1989 and has kind of lived and, and breathed this mission ever since also renowned for being a, a workaholic um, was a apparently just sleeping three hours a night as we came up to the 14th of July when the flyby happened. Perhaps some of the wider excitement about Pluto is perhaps down to him because he also makes sure that the right message is getting out there, very interested in public relations, was Facebooking it, um, tweeting it and so on. So what's what's happening next, Alan? Stern then? Well, a lot of the data is still coming back from New Horizons. So there's lots of analysis and interesting results to come back. And New Horizons has also got New Horizons itself. So um, in October and November, it ignited its engines and set out on course to visit a second Kuiper Belt object um, and it's going to arrive at that on New Year's Day in 2019. So this certainly isn't the last we've heard of uh, from New Horizons.
0: And there's been another story that's been all over the news this year, although it's hard to say it's just one story, and that is gene editing.
10: Yes, certainly. It seems like there's uh, no animal that has not been, uh, been, been gene edited. The, the list of animals just keeps, keeps growing. It started last year, but certainly ramped up this year. We've seen pigs enhanced with gene editing, uh, dogs, sheep, goats, you name it. Uh, it's certainly been an exciting year. and We're certainly seeing a, uh, a quite an increase in the number of uh, publications using the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system this year as well.
0: Now, in science, there's some really kind of celebrity names associated with gene editing who've really kind of shot to fame in 2015, even more than previously.
11: Well, it was interesting. We, we're very much aware of as we put together the Nature's Ten list um, about these incredible developments and excitement about gene editing this year. Um, and we decided to put on the list Jinju Huang. Now, in, in fact, he didn't really shoot to fame in that he's very much chosen to stay out of the limelight. But uh, the reason we put him on the list is because... Um, Earlier this year, he published the world's first report of a human embryo, which had been uh, gene edited. And this made enormous headlines and has also been extremely controversial and has sparked a a very long and and, and deep debate about whether we should be editing the genomes of humans. So, for example, recently there was a summit in Washington, D.C. on this topic. And the general consensus that's emerging seems to be that... um, It's okay to edit the genomes of human embryos if that's for research purposes in order to understand human development or to understand human disease. Um, But there's a lot of um, discomfort with the idea of editing the genes of human embryos, which would then go on to give a live birth.
0: Is there a risk looking forwards that this might be something that researchers practice in the future?
11: Um, I think researchers very much differ in their opinion on this. So some people feel that it should never be done. Some people feel that perhaps that is something that we would want to do once we fully um, understand this technique and have made it very, very safe. Because of course, there are some diseases which parents might choose not to have in their children. Uh, But it's felt that that's quite a distant prospect at the moment.
0: Now, Corey, as you said, it feels like almost everything has been gene edited now. Is there still some kind of low hanging fruit?
10: Well, I think we're going to see uh, more human clinical trials Uh, testing gene editing for uh, therapeutic purposes. So one company called uh, Sangamo Biosciences, they've already said that they're going to start a human trial uh, next year. Uh, They're going to be using a gene editing technology called zinc finger nucleases, uh, and they're going to use that to correct a gene defect uh, for hemophilia. So we're going to see a lot more headlines uh, about uh, these sorts of trials using gene editing for um, adult cells in humans.
0: Now back to more kind of planetary issues, but a bit closer to home than Pluto, no one can have escaped the fact that... The 21st COP, the Conference of the Parties, took place this December, aiming to achieve a climate deal. And of course, big news compared to lots of, the, well, almost all the other COPs, is that they actually succeeded in making a climate deal.
10: So, in 2015, there was uh, quite a lot of momentum that built up during the year uh, leading up to the uh, the Paris talks in December. Uh, We saw many countries one by one uh, submitting pledges to curb uh, greenhouse gas emissions in an effort to fight global warming um, so that by the time of the meeting, we had more than 180 countries uh, making these promises. Uh, And that's a lot more uh, engagement we saw from countries than in previous climate meetings. And the meeting in Paris was also uh, the biggest gathering of world leaders ever. Now, certainly, these pledges won't be enough to keep warming to uh, 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Uh, But this is an important starting point.
0: One woman in particular can be seen as kind of behind the scenes and in front of the scenes of all this progress that's been made in the climate negotiations and that of course is Christiana Figueres.
11: So she's played a really crucial role behind the scenes leading up to this COP. Um, So Figueres is head of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. She really has been working incredibly hard behind the scenes for the last five years in building support for an agreement from environmentalists, from business, from from governments for the accord. Um, so, it, it, you know, it didn't emerge from a vacuum. There's just been incredible diplomatic work going on. She has her roots in Costa Rica and she says that she decided to go into environmental activism because of the demise of a particular toad that disappeared from Costa Rica's Monteverde cloud forest reserve. So she saw one when she was young, but she realised that her daughters wouldn't. So she's been putting a lot of effort um, and it's also said that her roots in a developing country really helped her um, bridge the divide between rich countries and poor Countries in building support for this agreement because that's really um, been a major problem in the previous COPs.
0: Well, now that we've reached a deal, is that kind of the end of the line for COPs and for Christiana? There's
11: absolutely more that needs to be done. I mean, this is momentous in that all nations have committed to this battle against global warming finally. Um, but as, as Corrie said, um, it's unclear if really the the will is there and we understand the practical steps in order to reach that. But nevertheless um, worth celebrating and indeed that's what Figueres was doing. Uh, So I hear after the Paris meeting, hours after the agreement had been signed, she was spotted on the dance floor of a nightclub in Paris dancing to YMCA.
0: (laughs) Well that's what I'll be doing on New Year's Eve as well. Uh, Looking forward to 2016, are there any stories that you think our listeners should keep an eye out for that we'll be sat here in a year's time talking about?
11: I think there's enormous excitement about Um, studies of the microbiome. Um, So all the microbes in various environments. uh, Often the things um, which become headlines are the ones that you don't expect.
10: (laughs) So adding to what uh, Helen just said about the microbiome, uh, there's this project called the Earth Microbiome Project that was launched in 2010 and they plan to uh, publish some of their first results next year. So this effort is collecting at least 200,000 samples from around the world um, and they're going to sequence and characterize microbial DNA uh, so samples from, you know, uh, skin services, uh, soil, water, you name it, uh, it seems to be a pretty ambitious project to really probe uh, the true biodiversity uh, that we have on this planet. I think we'll also see,
11: as always, not just in in biology, but there'll probably be um, enormous developments in physics. Uh, There's a lot of excitement about what might come next from the LHC, uh, which is ramping up to um, very high-energy particle collisions at the moment. And there's lots of people are curious as to whether there'll be another big discovery emerging from from that lab.
0: I look forward to talking to both of you about the new news of 2016. As always, to keep abreast of all the latest science news, head over to nature.com forward slash news
2: that's all from us for 2015 we hope you've enjoyed listening this year as much as we've enjoyed making the show for you we'll be back bright and early in january with our predictions for science in 2016 i'm kerry smith
0: and i'm adam levy